Um, sometimes Sunday school is one of those things for me. Sermons are kind of a, a contained thing. You've got a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And with Sunday school, uh, I find it's easier. I'm just going to teach till we run out of time. And if, if we get to a middle, we're not quite through, we'll stop. We'll just take it up where we are next time. So these may not all be uh, tidy in that sense of uh, fitting in a certain period of time. But again, we're dealing with why we believe what we believe. Uh, a number of us were here for Pastor Hatting's uh, talk, talks this weekend for Iron Sharpens Iron, uh, dealing with C.S. Lewis's abolition of, of man. And one of the central points of that is that what we need to do is first, we ourselves, as Deuteronomy tells us, is we, uh, as God's people, individually need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where it starts. What, learning from God what to love. That means we have to know things. We have to be taught things because we're not born knowing those things. And as we grow in our knowledge, we begin to grow in our loves. We start to love things we didn't even know about before. We start to love things that maybe we even didn't like when they were first presented. But as we get to know them and study them, uh, we start to see how beautiful they are. I think really the world is full of that, right? If uh, I know sometimes uh, since I've lived in Woden now for 20 years, uh, I still will run across uh, a moth or an insect or a butterfly or a spider or some kind of a critter I've never seen before. And, I, and while I don't chase down the mammals, I do, uh, uh, I do on the insects, I get to looking at them, and I look at them closely and, you know, from a distance, that's a moth. And then when you get to looking at it and the beautiful patterns and all the intricacies of the parts of the body, and you can do that with a plant, you can do that with a building, you can do that with everything that's in the world because it all declares the glory of God. And it's, it's part of, those are not God, but they are His handiwork. And the Bible says the things He created declare His glory. But if I walk past them, as I'm prone to do, and I don't pay attention, I don't get the benefit of that. I don't, I don't have that awe. I don't have that uh, uh, moment of discovery and delight. And so what we want to do with the Word of God is as we grow and mature in Christ, we have to know things. So we have to have teachers. We have books. We have pastors and teachers. Uh, and so we have to know and not just know. We're not just trying to pass a quiz this isn't a trivia uh, contest. We have to know it in here. We have to appreciate it. When we talk about knowing something, it's knowing it in an intimate way that it becomes ours. But then Deuteronomy says, and after you've done that, you're to teach these things diligently to your children. So we're not just teaching them about things. What's critical here is we teach them what to love because they're not born knowing what to love. Some, in fact, as sinners, we sometimes love things that will kill us. We love the wrong things. And so what we have to do in teaching our children why, why we believe what we believe, the goal isn't just to answer those two questions, but ultimately what we want to do is teach them to love the things God has taught us to love. That, of course, can't happen if we don't love those things. Uh, we can't pass that on. 
And so that is the task uh, and what we want to do. And so uh, we began last week with an introduction, and I'm going to take the name of our denomination, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. I'm just using this as a, as a framework for, a dis- for our discussion. And I'm going to start with the word churches. I'm going to start there today to talk about what is a Christian church. Who are Christ- what are Christians? And how do we define that? And again, this is not going to be comprehensive. We could have many, many lessons on any of these things. But I want to give you, hopefully, a bit of an overview and a hook uh, to hang your hat on uh, when it comes to these questions. So when we talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we talk about Christian churches, uh, we would also recognize there are boundaries there. And, and we need to know where those boundaries are and what those mean so that as we talk about these things uh, and we say, yeah, they're Christians, but we need to understand that sometimes what we are referring to is doctrinally they, they hold to the creeds and therefore this group or that group is a Christian group. But of course, that doesn't mean every individual in that group is Christian. That doesn't mean that everything that group believes is, is, is correct. Obviously, there are many disagreements among Christians about what the Bible teaches about this, that, or the other, and they can't all be right. And so Christians can be Christians and be wrong about any number of things. And yet we would still call them Christians. There are Christian churches who I would honor as Christian churches. We would receive people in the membership from those churches. We'd receive those baptisms and recognize them as valid Christian baptism. But if I lived in that town, I probably wouldn't go to that church for any number of reasons. It doesn't mean they're not Christian. I mean, you think about that. That's true in life, right? You're married to your spouse. You love them. Uh, there are lots of people you love, but you wouldn't marry them. <laughs> okay? Uh, not because you don't love them, but... For other reasons, there, there's not a compatibility or so forth. And so we want to have an ecumenical spirit that is a broad view of Christendom that is appropriate and understand what that is without saying, oh, well, that's all that matters. We just get together and love each other. Let's tear down the walls of doctrine, sometimes people say. Well, the walls are what define who we are. That doctrine, the teaching, is. And so, again, we're going to break this down and we'll come back and look at what it is to be evangelical. We'll look at what it is to be reformed. And then we'll look at what it is to be our local church community, our communion. I want to mention, I started last week talking, or ended talking about catechisms and the importance of it. I picked up about 20 copies of Rich Lusk uh, Catechism, I Belong to God, a Catechism for Covenant Children. They're out there on the book cart. So if you're interested in those, this is also available online. This is an excellent uh, little catechism, uh, questions and answers. It's good for adults, too. Uh, I like the first question. Who are you? I am a child of God. That's a great place to start. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that I belong to him and he loves me. So you can see, you know, and then as you go through this, the questions and the answers begin to get a bit longer and more detailed. Not exhaust, I mean, they're all short answers. What is the gospel? Question 72. 
The gospel is the victorious announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus is now King of kings and Lord of lords. In the gospel, God promises us the forgiveness of our sins, victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. So very simple, concise answers. So another tool for you as parents that you can use with your children. Um, Laverne Landrum told me last week, I'm going to make some young people angry. Uh, she had a pastor at one point, had five daughters, and uh, a Presbyterian pastor. He required all of them to learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism before they could get their driver's license. And they all did. Right? So there. Some of you are getting your driver's license in like three months. You've got a lot of work to do. That, if you want your license. All right, let's uh, talk today. I want to talk about creedalism. What is a creed? Uh, ecumenical creed is an umbrella term used in the Western Church uh, and Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church standing within the tradition of the churches of the Protestant Reformation, recognizes the following universal or ecumenical creeds uh, and confessions. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon. And so the ecumenical creeds, again, are also known as the universal, or sometimes we use the word Catholic, which just means universal, Catholic creeds. That's not Roman Catholic. Uh, these creeds are accepted by almost all mainstream Christian denominations in the Western world, including the Roman Catholic Church, Anglican Church, Lutheran churches, and so forth. So a creed, by definition, is a summary or a statement of what one believes. It originates from the Latin word credo. It just means I believe. So when we speak of Christian orthodoxy, uh, we're saying that a person or a church holds to those ecumenical creeds, and this should not be confused with something like the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. So when we say someone is an Orthodox Christian, it could mean well, it, it could mean that they're Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, but when we're using it in the broader sense of that term, Orthodox just means Christian uh, within the pale of traditional creedal Christianity. And uh, so the term means conforming to the Christian faith as represented in the creeds of the early church. And so orthodoxy, the word really is a reference to the straight, uh, true teachings of the church, teachings that can't be changed. These are the fixed and established things. So faced with diverse interpretations of the apostolic message, uh, leaders in the very early church sought to specify the core Christian beliefs to ensure soundness of Christian teaching. You imagine, especially in the first century or two or three, uh, churches cropping up all over the place. And you, there's no seminaries. There's, no, uh, there's, there's just all kinds of situations where you're trying to manage this and all kinds of ideas and things. We don't even have a codified New Testament yet. So things are getting passed around. Uh, and so ideas from other philosophies and, and, and so forth are getting mixed in with Christianity. So a lot of what we see in the book of Acts is they're going back to churches and teaching churches 
and spending time with them is to shore up these doctrinal things because left to themselves, uh, there's not the maturity, the wisdom, or the resources to, to uh, deal with this. And so it's a bit like herding cats in the early church. Uh, they're just all over the place. And so the church, is, as it matures and grows, is going to recognize we need to codify some of this. We need to write these things down so that we begin to all talk the same talk and have this conversation about the Bible. And so, uh, as we'll see in a minute, you know, you know, the question is, why not just have the Bible be your creed? Well, it is, but we're going to see because the Bible is a really big book, that, uh, that requires some further definition. We could say, obey the law of God, but if we said that, we would be referring to the whole Bible. But God gave us the Ten Commandments, and then he gave us the two greatest commandments as a summary to help us get a handle on it. So the Ten Commandments are not the whole law of God, but they are a summary of the whole law of God. If you want a commentary on the Ten Commandments, read the rest of the Bible. That's how you find out how do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? That's what the rest of the Bible tells us. So uh, the determination of the canon of Scripture, that that is, the canon is just the list, I mean, uh, the books of the Bible, if you will, uh, and the adoption of the ecumenical creeds, such as the formulations of Nicaea and Chalcedon, were of central importance to this consensus process. And such creeds help preserve the integrity of the church's witness, uh, set boundaries, again, for acceptable Christian doctrine, and proclaim the basic elements of the enduring Christian message that had been passed on through the centuries. So these statements, along with the Apostles' Creed, contain the most prominent features of our ecumenical heritage. Again, ecumenical just means representing a number of different Christian churches. It comes from a Latin word meaning belonging to the whole inhabited world, the whole world of Christendom. So that's what we mean by all all Christians is what we mean when we say ecumenical. Again, there's other uses of that word that we would not want to be. The ecumenical movement came out up in, in the uh, last century is not something we'd want to be a part of. Actually, that movement sought to get rid of doctrine. Again, tear down the walls of doctrine and became a very liberal movement uh, and, and so forth. So the first creeds of the Christian church, again, are called ecumenical creeds because they were decided upon in church councils that represented basically the entire church at the time Uh, before the church permanently split into Eastern Orthodox and the Western Roman factions in about 1054. Later, creeds and confessions of faith reflect the diversity of Christian tradition and tend to become more specialized. We're going to look at that later when we look at confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession or the Belgic Confession, all kinds of confessions that are going to be usually larger and be more specific, and and so different groups will begin to develop their own confessions, but the creeds are more condensed and more universal. So I want to talk a bit about why sometimes people, you know, balk at this, especially if it's new to you. Um, uh, Many Christians diminish the importance of creeds and and confessions of faith. As a matter of fact, uh, many non-creedalists don't simply dismiss creeds as unimportant, for maintaining biblical Christianity, they would consider them positively antithetical to it. And so such a position is not simply non-credal, but rather anti-credal. And so we're against creeds. 
And so many factors are at work generating this anti-accretal sentiment, an increasing permeation of society with relativistic existential concerns for the moment. That's old-fashioned. We don't need that. Uh, Again, I've got my own private beliefs, and you have yours. A loss of a sense of significance, the significance of history. A democratic concern for non-coercion and individual freedom of belief. In fact, again, I actually talked to someone last week who called me, and he assured me that he and his family had written their own private uh, confession of faith, which in, in itself, that's not necessarily bad for you and your family. So I said, what do we believe? But to do that is, is something, end of, he said something like, and I presented this uh, to the church, to the pastor, and uh, he didn't reply to everything I had in there. I said, well, you know what, you were, you, that was wrong. The church isn't joining you. You're joining the church. You should read the church's creed, and then you decide whether you want to be a part of that. You don't, we don't all get to privately come and say, well, I would join the church, but I have my own private beliefs and creeds, and so I'll just, I'll stay over here unless you're ready to join me. That's not how it works. And that's really prideful and arrogant. I'm not saying that was the intent, but that is the effect. A pervasive tendency, again, another reason, to simplification, uh, again, as well as other considerations like the idea that doctrine divides. You know, if we just stopped talking about doctrine, we could all get along, right? We could just have a big group hug. Some fear that creeds undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. And so you'll hear this phrase, no creed but the Bible. And that appears to reassert the primacy of the Bible. And some oppose creeds as man-made traditions, the precepts of men, and simply opinions. But it is imperative to recognize that creedal standards are not independent assertions of truth nor are they truth claims that are on a par with Scripture. For example, in our Constitution, uh, we refer to the creeds as secondary doctrinal standards. The primary doctrinal standard is the Bible, Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So the Bible is the only ultimate source and standard of Christian truth since it's the infallible, inerrant, and living Word of God. Understanding, though, the original meaning of the word creed might be helpful for dispelling some of the anti-creedal concerns. So again, the English word creed, derived from Latin credo, means I believe. A creed, then, is just a statement of faith. Here's what I believe. As such, a creed no more diminishes the authority of God's word than a statement such as, I believe in God. That's a creed. Or, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. That's a creed. As a matter of fact, such statements, again, are creeds, even though they're brief ones. Anyone who thinks of God in a particular way has a creedal view of God, whether or not they reduce that to writing or not. Surely, uh, this in no way diminishes the primacy or the centrality of the Bible. Furthermore, some argue that a creed reduces the authority of the Bible by implying somehow that the Bible was inadequate. It just wasn't enough. We need something extra. So why do we need a creed if we have the Bible? And if such a concern were valid, we could argue with equal force that a minister's sermonic exposition of Christ's words implies that Christ's words were inadequate 
uh, as they stand. We wouldn't need sermons. So this is, I just think, patently false. Those who fault, uh, so for example, Presbyterian subscription to the Westminster Standards or subscription of the Congregationalist and Baptist to closely related standards should be made to realize that, for example, the Westminster Confession is self-consciously derived, a derived, is derived from and subordinate to the Bible. It not only amply demonstrates and vigorously maintains its utter dependence upon Scripture in its opening chapter, but it, uh, it allows, in fact, it encourages appeal from itself to the authority of the Bible. So, for example, in the Westminster Confession, and we're going to say more about the confessions later. I'm just illustrating how a creed can work here. Uh, paragraphs 4 and 10 from the opening chapter of Westminster says, uh, uh, The authority of Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author of, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. And then in the same chapter, paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be of no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. Again, uh, Westminster chapter 31, verse 3, the confession speaks of the subordinate authority of all ecclesiastical or church creeds. Um, So such creedal formulations are to be heeded only if they are consistent with the Word of God. Thus, the Westminster Confession, as a proper creed, actually supports the supreme and unparalleled authority of Scripture. Certainly no law in Scripture explicitly commands, thou shalt frame creeds. Nevertheless, the impetus and mandate for creeds derives from what we call good and necessary inferences that are deduced from Scripture. And we can demonstrate this several ways. And I'll give a few here. First, the biblical call for a public affirmation of faith serves as a prime impetus to creedalism. So I'm going to be giving some Scripture references here. The essence of Christian duty is to be a witness. This requires publicly defining the exact identity of that to which we are witnessing. Obviously, reciting the entire Scripture record at a given opportunity of witness is not possible. What is the Christian witness? The Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, hang on, we're going to be here a while. Are we going to cite the whole Bible? Furthermore, only God can look into the hearts of individuals to ascertain their inmost faith. Thus, for others to know of an individual's personal faith, it's necessary to put it into words. Uh, Romans 10.10, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Hence, the necessity of a creed in defining the content of belief. So again, if, I, if you said, what do you believe? And you said, well, let me, I'll tell you five things I believe. Well, is that all I believe? No, it's a summary. It's a condensed version. We can unpack all those five things. And maybe there's a hundred things or a thousand things. But let's start with the top five. And let me 
put them in a summary form. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Then we could go to the Bible and demonstrate that, right? But as a summary statement, that's a creed. Second, many creed, many M-I-N-I creeds are preserved in the Bible record of apostolic Christianity itself. The very seeds of a full-blown creedalism are sown in the apostolic era by way of brief statements of faith which are widely employed. Perhaps the most familiar of these creeds is the recurring one embedded in such texts as Acts 10.36, Romans 10.9, 1 Corinthians 12.3, and Philippians 2.11, which simply says, Jesus is Lord. Perhaps the most familiar, um, uh, excuse me, this important statement embodies a particular way of viewing Jesus Christ. It fundam- it's fundamentally necessary to hold as one's credo, I believe Jesus is Lord. Third, within the biblical record, we find early ecclesiastical assemblies, church assemblies, recasting already known truths to ensure their accurate preservation and transmission. Acts 15 is a classic example. There the churches restate justification by faith in response to a Christian-slash-Pharisaic pressure demanding the circumcision of Gentile converts. And after noting several such situations in Scripture, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister James Bannerman observes this. He says, such within the age of inspiration itself are the remarkable... So when when the Bible itself is being inspired, uh, so within the age of inspiration itself are the remarkable examples we have of the necessity growing out of the circumstances of the church and its members that arose at different times for recasting the doctrines of Scripture in a new mold and exhibiting or explaining it afresh under forms of language and expression more precisely fitted to meet and counteract the errors of the time. Thus, the concept of creedalism is a scriptural one that in no way diminishes the authority of Scripture or implies the Scripture's inadequacy. So what are the... I want to give some some of the functions of creeds. First, creeds serve as a basis for church or ecclesiastical fellowship and labor. Remember, we're talking about What is the Christian church? Who are the Christians? So this is going to help us identify that, at least in the broadest sense of that word. There's still more work to be done after that. Again, just like if I gave you a summary of five things I believe, we could take number one and unpack that and say, well, I I don't believe this about, you know, I'm not saying this and I am saying that and here's some more detail and let me explain. Uh, So, again, a basis for church fellowship and labor. Whenever... Two walk, uh, Amos 3.3, 3, whenever two walk together, they must be agreed, for a house divided against itself cannot stand. So rather than saying doctrine divides, actually doctrine unites. We just have cattle roaming everywhere. Uh, it's kind of hard to know whose who's cattle are whose. But if we put up a fence or a corral, we can identify those are my cattle. Uh, we can, so we're wanting to identify who are God's people. Who are, who are the Christians? Uh, community labors are better performed and body life is more consistently maintained within that church which possesses a common faith and it's imperative that the particular content of that fundamental faith be known 
in a written creed. So there are a number of things we could do, I think, of our pro-life work with other Trinitarian uh, churches who would profess, say, the Apostle or Nicene Creed. We'd have a lot of other disagreements, but that would be an area where we could unite and work together. We're not saying we're uniting and working together at every point. We are working together there, and those the creedalism provides a basis for that. Non-creedal fundamentalism is both internally inconsistent at the theoretical level and seriously endangered at the practical level. Its theoretical inconsistency is manifest in the internal contradiction of the very statement, no creed but the Bible, or no creed but Christ. That statement is a creed. That is a creed. It may not be written down, but it is a creed. And it says, in effect, I believe in no creed. That is, my creed is that there, is, that there be no creed. Furthermore, this theoretical position is not possible to practice. Even um, uh, those who have taken this position, they require some sort of implied statement of belief from persons who are seeking positions of authority in their fellowship. How are we going to ordain ministers? What do you believe? We have some questions for you. Explain your position on this, this, or this. Ironically, non-credalism possesses inherent dangers in that, it's, in that, in principle, such a position would allow almost any doctrine into the church. If we have no creedal statement, then almost anything would go. Southern Presbyterian theologian uh, Robert L. Dabney uh, apply, aptly comments, he said, As man's mind is notoriously fallible, and professed Christians who claim to hold the Scriptures, uh, and uh, as they understand them, differ from each other notoriously, some platform for union and cooperation must be adopted by which those who believe they are truly agreed may stand together and work together. In a way, it's an application of the Scriptures. So churches absolutely must provide a formal public affirmation of their faith so that the members and prospective members may know exactly where they stand. And that is the function, one of the functions of a creed. Creeds are also serve as tools of Christian education, just like we've been talking about catechism. That's a type of creed. Obviously, the sheer volume of the Bible, 1,189 chapters containing over 773,000 words, forbids its full comprehension by every Christian or even by one supremely gifted believer in an entire lifetime. Nevertheless, God commands his people in the Old Testament, the Shema, as we refer to in Deuteronomy 6, and in the New Testament, Great Commission, to teach the Bible's truths to others. All things whatsoever I have commanded you. This, teach, this teaching process necessarily deals with fundamental selected truths at first. Think about any education. We start with kindergarten. Thus we have children's catechisms. And we go to elementary school and junior high and high school and college and graduate school. And, you know, you can't start up here. You have to start down here. And so a growing understanding of the Bible comes only through reading it, systematizing it, hearing it expounded, and applying it. 19th century Presbyterian 
Theologian A.A. Hodge notes in his defense of creeds, quote, while the scriptures are from God and understanding of them belongs to the part of men, men must interpret to the best of their ability each particular part of the scripture separately and then combine all that the scripture teaches upon different subjects in mutual consistency as parts of a harmonious system. That's what we call systematic theology, and creeds are a type of systematic theology. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about repentance? What do you believe about the Trinity? These are questions, and then we're going to draw from the whole Bible to come up with a summary statement of what we believe about those things based on the Scriptures. In short, creeds are simply expository distillations condensing of Scripture. They summarily state the most basic themes of Scripture in order to facilitate education. If a brief expository summation of the teaching of the Bible is acceptable to evangelical Christians, then creeds are legitimate in that they fulfill that precise function. In this respect, creeds differ from doctrinal sermons only in being more exact and being more carefully compiled by several minds, usually groups of people over a considerable period of time debating and we need to change this word and that word and really trying to refine it. And once a church encourages public teaching of the word or publishes literature explaining it, that church has in fact made a creedal statement. Third, creeds provide an objective, concrete standard for church discipline. As noted previously, any church having officers or teachers must require their accepting of the standard of the belief of that church. The provision, no creed but the Bible, cannot and does not serve as a standard in any church. It's true, there is, that, that's the ultimate creed, that's the ultimate standard, but uh, um, we are going, again, refine that for purposes of evaluation. The fact that cultists are debarred from service in Orthodox churches illustrates a creed, uh, that a creed exists. If we say, well, we're not going to let Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses be be members and officers of the church. Why? Uh, If a church has any interpretation at all of any part of the Bible that must be held by its officers, then ipso facto it has a creed, even if it's not written. But an unwritten creed serving as a standard of discipline in such circumstances is dangerous. Surely it's far more open and honest to have a stable, clearly worded, publicly recognizable standard of belief. Uh, Then appeal can be made to the standard in situations where men are either debarred from entering the ministry or from joining a church or who are forced to relinquish their duties of membership or charged with heresy. Fourth, creeds help to preserve the Orthodox Christian faith in the ongoing church. That's why we're going to pass, pass along our faith, right? Jude 3 exhorts Christians, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the system of faith incorporated in the scriptures and embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ and revealed in its finality by the apostles is the once, um, once for all, is once for all delivered. And it is unchangeable 
uh, it is unchanging and unchangeable. That's the Bible. That immutable faith must be preserved from generation to generation, and creeds are that, uh, that are true to Scripture serve to tie generations of believers together by laying down a specific set of fundamental truths. That's one of the reasons we recite the Nicene Creed every Sunday. We want to get it in your bones. It connects us to those who've gone before, to Christians throughout the world. That's our connection. That's why that, again, is included in our worship is a way of identifying with those who've gone before us and saying we profess the same fundamental truths that the Bible teaches. So Scripture carefully instructs the church to preserve the faith. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be carried away by very varied and strange teachings. Paul instructs two early church leaders in this vein. He writes, Timothy, retain the standard of sound words. Remember, he says that to Timothy, there's not a New Testament yet. Which you have heard from me and in the, and in faith, uh, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then in Titus 1.9, he urges Titus carefully to see that an overseer hold fast the faithful word which is in accord with the teaching that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Again, that instruction is given before we have a New Testament. That is, again, in process, but no doubt the apostles had summarized many teachings that they passed along to all the various churches that are cropping up and saying these are the fundamental things that you need to know and understand. And they're also dealing with controversies and challenges and heretics that come along. Although the special direct revelation of God has ceased and the body of Scripture was finalized in the first century, it still remains necessary for the, coming, for the continuing church to interpret and apply that completed revelation. Um, the interpretation and application of Scripture is a process, not an act. So, thus, so, for example, you can get books of historical theology. So doctrines like the Trinity uh, over a period of, in the early centuries, becomes more and more articulated from the Bible. Different heresies, different challenges come up, and then the church would meet and try to deal with those and answer those and come up with formulations that would address those issues. Well, we have issues in our own day, some of which are not addressed in the uh, Westminster Standards, for example, the abortion issue. Uh, we're going to have things like uh, uh, any number of medical ethics questions that come up. That we have, so What does the Bible say about those? Those perhaps haven't been issues before. What about um, genetic engineering? That was not an issue 100 years ago. And now suddenly it is an issue. What, is, what, the, what does the Bible teach? Um, so it has required the involvement of many devout men working through many centuries to systematize, compile, and disseminate the fundamental truths of Scripture. The fact that the truth, that the truth of Scripture is no private interpretation is a foundational principle of creedal theology. No interpreter of Scripture works alone. We must all build on the past labors of godly predecessors, and the interpreters of group, or, uh, of, of group or exegetes who agree with the historic orthodox interpretations of the past and who find themselves in the mainstream of Christian thought uh, are not suspect. And so creeds help us to preserve the essential core 
of of true Christian faith from generation to generation. So the Apostle Paul expresses his fear that some within the Corinthian church are in danger of being, quote, led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ by subtle craftiness. The same concern must provoke the church today to guard the central elements of Christian truth from distortion. In terms of a creed's function in this regard, A.A. Hodge remarks that the real question is not, as often pretended, between the word of God and the creed of man, but between the tried and proved faith of the collective body of God's people and the private judgment and unassisted wisdom of the individual objector. Now, we're out of time. Uh, I have... um, a couple of more, so we'll just stop uh, with number number five. I'll tell you what number five and six are. Uh, creeds offer a witness to the truth of those outside the church. And six, creeds provide a standard by which to judge new teachings that arise within the church. And then we'll wrap that up and move to the next section. Got a couple of minutes here. Any comments or questions? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for faithful people who have indeed passed on the truth of your word from generation to generation. And while we recognize that we as mere men are fallible and that your word is not fallible, our understanding of that word is fallible, and we need guidance and help, and we need it to be tested over time. And help us, Lord, not to be like the Athenians who... Uh, always wanted something new, something novel, but help us to be rooted in the fundamental truths of your word. Thank you for those who have written those things down for us to help us think through these things more precisely and clearly. And bless us now as we sit under your word uh, in the next hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.